Welcome captives and captive friends to episode 22 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialists R&Q and presented by me, Richard Kutcher. We are out a few days earlier than usual to give you a few extra days to listen before the Christmas holidays. A very Merry Christmas from me to all of our listeners, but especially to our last guest co-host of 2019, Jenny Coletta, partner within Insurance International Tax Services at EY. Jenny, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Um, a reminder that you can still find all 21 of the previous Global Captive Podcast episodes and subscribe for free on the Apple Podcasts app, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Jenny, where, where do you listen to podcasts? Through Spotify. Spotify, yeah. <laughs> a, a, lot of my, a lot of my listeners actually do... Uh, a lot of people that I meet actually listen on Spotify, but the numbers suggest that that's the lowest place, the smallest platform that people listen to me. So it's, I seem to have met a disproportionate number of uh, of Spotify listeners. But um, Jenny and I won't just be discussing uh, Spotify. We'll be also be discussing the latest BEPs and tax developments in a moment. But later in the episode, Julia Graham, Deputy CEO and my boss, actually, at Airmic, will address captive governance and the role of non-executive directors and Peter Halperin, a New York-based partner at law firm PASIC, will address complex reinsurance disputes. But first, Jenny, you've helped me out a lot over the past uh, six years on the topic of the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development's Base Erosion and Profit Shifting Project, better known shortly as BEPS. For those uh, not so familiar, Jenny, could you just explain in layman terms, perhaps, what the purpose of the BEPS project is? Okay, so the origins of the BEPS project were really around about 2013 when the G20 mandated uh, the OECD to address what was perceived tax avoidance, so base erosion, as you say, and profit shifting. Uh, The OECD then started the the BEPS project addressing 15 action points, um, of which those were mainly concluded in 2015. The BEPS project, however, still has been going on behind the scenes. But what we've seen as a result of BEPS is that the 36 member states that are part of the OECD have or are implementing those 15 actions. But in addition to that, there are another 100 countries. So there are 135 countries in total in what's known as the inclusive framework. And all of those countries are now implementing in some way, shape or form, some or many of the 15 actions. So what those actions do is really look at the international tax framework and try to address cross-border arrangements where there's perceived tax avoidance, where profits are moving to low or zero tax jurisdictions, for example, or where value creation doesn't align with functions, assets and risks. So that that work has been ongoing, as I say, but the very first action of those 15 dealt with how to tax the digital economy, and that was action one back in 2013. That never really got concluded, and so we've now got what we call BEPS 2, the second wave of the BEPS project, and that's what's been going underway in in 2019, which we'll we'll talk about shortly. So why is the general uh, project relevant to insurance and uh, to captors in particular? So as I say, it targets all industries um, across the board, so we target all 
captive owners as well as financial services groups but really focused on targeting cross-border transfers of function asset risk and as we know in the insurance world um, that's very much at the heart of what we what we need to be able uh, to undertake global trade we need to be able to transfer our risk cross-border and therefore the insurance industry and the captive insurance industry is, is caught up in these proposals but equally there are lots of parts within the OECD um, 15 actions that specifically refer to captives and, and notably that that's often a cross-border of transfer of risk or assets to a low or zero tax jurisdiction. Of course and of course uh, many popular domiciles are you know, zero or, or low tax jurisdiction so are there some countries with tax authorities that are, are more advanced or, or rigorous uh, or strict in kind of following the implementation of OECD guidelines on BEPS uh, than others? So I'd say the UK have tended to gold plate a lot of what was proposed in the BEPS project. So they've introduced things like the diverted profits tax, which as we know has impacted the captive insurance industry very heavily. Uh, They've implemented uh, all of the transparency requirements about things like country by country reporting as well as all the changes that we've had historically around how we tax foreign profit. So the UK is definitely up there. Um, I would say the the US tax reform, as I mentioned, very much focused on um, that base erosion and really uh, what I would refer to as border protection to an extent, which again has had impacts um, more widely in the insurance industry, but potentially also in the the captive insurance industry. So those, uh, those tax reforms, for example, diverted profits tax, that's is it is that only relevant to the location of where the captive owner is so the, the dpt is, is particularly relevant to uk plcs that own captives mainly to uk plcs because there are two ways in which the diverted profits tax can challenge those structures and that would be on the actual um, premium payment itself to the captive as well as then any activities that are done in the uk that relate to the captive for non-uk plcs that have a presence in the uk that are paying a premium from a local operating company to a captive they could also be caught i remember jenny that well probably three or four years ago now when we were first talking about this or you and I were first talking about this there seems to be a lot of consternation amongst the captive insurance industry in particular regarding the uh, OECD's actual understanding of what captives are and what purpose they serve so do we have we seen any improvements in that regards do we think the OECD are getting the message into what the actual purpose of captives are rather than just some unknown shell company in whatever jurisdiction I think there's still a lot of misunderstanding amongst the delegates that obviously all come from the different countries represented in the inclusive framework. Lots of countries still not necessarily understanding the importance of of the captive insurance industry and again that perception that often the the captive will be located in a low or zero tax jurisdiction and is that that therefore the purpose is tax the driver for that some jurisdictions are starting to understand through the lobbying efforts through the discussions with the industry but i still think we've got a long a long way to go do you think that the changing insurance market the hardening market will almost help make that case for captive owners so they can really show the mechanism that is a captive as they ramp up its use because of changes in the insurance market. Yeah, and I think that's often the support that um, multinationals put forward when they're under audit or challenged from a tax authority in relation to their captive. They will demonstrate that the captive is a 
an essential part of managing their risk, particularly where there are risks increasingly that can't easily be laid off to the third party market, either because they're too large or because they're largely unknown, like the insurance of intangibles, for example, in which case the captive really comes into play. And and then being able to demonstrate the capital and pricing benefit of the captive of locating all your risk in one place and then how you lay that off to the third party market, that's an essential piece of being able to support that sort of challenge. I think just as, as, as an aside, which is really interesting from my work at Airmic, and I get to talk to some of the largest captive owners in the UK on a very regular basis, is, and those who aren't captive owners even, the unavailability of insurance is actually making it onto their risk registers. That is a principal risk that um, some of the largest companies are, are considering and, and, and facing, and obviously a captive can be a mitigation tool when there is uh, unavailable, unavailability of insurance. So I think it'd be great to see tax authorities and the OECD really, really take that uh, usefulness seriously. So talking of AMIC, we are going to come back to Jenny in a moment to talk more about BEPS and its impact on captives. But first, we are going to hear from uh, my boss, Julia Graham, Deputy CEO at AMIC and a non-executive director on four captive boards in Guernsey, really diverse, different kinds of captives. And uh, Julia and I focused on captive governance and non-executive directors, but she started by sharing her background in risk and insurance. Just over 30 years working with several insurance companies. Uh, for the last 10 years at RSA, I became the head of UK risk and the head of global risk for strategic risk, emerging risk, and eventually compliance. And I probably would have stayed there until my final salary pension scheme came in. But I was approached by a global law firm, which became DLA Piper. Was DLA at the time and uh, Sir Nigel Knowles as he now is said come and join this firm uh, we're going to be the biggest law firm in the world number seven in the UK I think at the time but you know he sounded so inspiring that I thought this seems to be a job I have to do the captive um, and experience there I had a little bit of contact with captives at RSA in fact Royal had a captive that they used in the Isle of Man. Mm. But my real experience started when I joined DLA Piper because we had a captive in Guernsey. And it was enormously important for the firm when it was set up because we were worried about the availability of uh, professional indemnity insurance. And that was the original driver. So my immediate experience with captives was then through um, DLA Piper's own captive And then the firm allowed me to start developing captive non-exec directorship positions about four years ago. Um, And I now have four, including DLA Pipers, even following my retirement from DLA. They asked if I would stay on and I swapped from executive to non-executive and I'm still on that board today. Fantastic. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more particularly on the topic of non-executive directors in a moment. But uh, coming back to Airmic, we launched in May this year, 2019, a captive governance guide, which looks particularly at captive boards and the role of non-executive directors. I had the pleasure of producing that guide, but the idea, I believe, obviously predated my arrival at Airmic. And why did you think this piece of work was necessary and timely? Very simple answer to that question, Richard. I was asked, do you know where we can find a guide um, that covers the role and responsibilities of non-exec directors on captives? Um, And the answer was no. 
I couldn't find a guide that did that. And I think the reason I was asked that question was the general raising of the bar of responsibilities for any type of director on any type of board. And although captive boards um, have different profiles, nevertheless, many of the responsibilities are based on the law and guidelines that apply to a non-exec director on any board, whether it's a captive or not. So as I couldn't find one, uh, we decided we we would fill that void and we would draft one. And then happily you came along and you picked that up and we have the guide that we've got now. And I think uh, I think what's been really great about the guide is uh, obviously we launched it obviously with a with a UK uh, perspective in mind. We kind of really focus on domiciles such as Guernsey, Isle of Man, Dublin, those which are used regularly by our members. But it seems to have uh, been spread around, and my colleagues and contacts in Vermont, Bermuda, Malta have picked it up and and seem to find it really helpful. So that so that that's great. Julia, you are as you said, you are a, a non-exec director on four captive boards in Guernsey what what do you think makes a a good non-executive director I think the profile for a good non-exec on a captive is the same as the profile for a good non-exec on any board Um, I think you have to have um, an interest in the sector that you're representing Uh, you have to have a relevant professional background and so many captive boards are quite small and it's not untypical to have a design that involves somebody who's got a legal background, an accountancy background. And on the boards I sit on, generally it's because of my insurance and risk management background. So very complementary in a small board uh, for an organisation that still needs to cover the sort of scope of any uh, other board that you might be asked to be on. Um, The other thing I think makes um, a good captive board is diversity. So not only diversity in terms of having those professional backgrounds, but also diversity in its widest sense. So professional experience, uh, diversity in terms of age, gender, knowledge, etc. So in many ways, the same sort of diversity of board that you would expect to see in a PLC. So I guess often could it be that the non-executive director can fill, fill a role which might not be served by the executive directors on the board. So maybe the, they're missing that, they haven't got someone from legal on the boards, they might look to an exec to fill that gap or, or they haven't got anyone from finance, they might want to get a finance background on the board. Yeah, I, I think that's possible. I think you bring in a couple of things. You bring in knowledge of captives, for example, um, which is going to be helpful because for the executive, it's probably the only captive board they sit on. So if you've got a, a background which involves other sectors and other captive boards, I think that's very helpful because you can bring in your wider knowledge and experience of captives and add value to the board in that way. So what are then your general observations of the broader captive, non-executive director landscape? Well, um, I have to base my experience uh, on what I know and particularly what I know in Guernsey because all my captives are domiciled there and that's intentional by the way um, because I wanted to specialise in one regulatory regime and it's also uh, geographically a sensible place for me to aim for because I live um, very close to an airport that can fly me in and fly me out. But we, we shouldn't forget that um, increasing re- requirements of substance mean that you need to be in Guernsey to, to take decisions, and that's easy for me to do. But I think what makes a good captive board is, and what I see in the gaps at the moment, is that it is basically, and I don't wish to be disrespectful and My captive board colleagues will probably be smiling, ironically, if they listen to this podcast, Richard, is that we've got to have uh, fewer middle-aged 
men in grey suits. And I think there are some captive boards which have remained static for a long time, and yet we live in a dynamic world. So the two areas that I feel most captive boards could benefit from is some dynamism in terms of uh, membership. And the other thing I think they could benefit from is having greater diversity. And particularly uh, when I look at Guernsey in gender, especially in gender, where there aren't um, very many women who are sitting on the boards. Are the women there? I think there probably are. Um, And I think it is probably changing, by the way. Um, I don't want to infer that nobody is doing anything about this. But I do do think we could do better. I should say as well that a lot of this is, we're talking from a Guernsey perspective primarily, but a lot of this is applicable across the board to not just other domiciles across Europe, onshore and offshore, but also US. In the guide that we produced at EMIT, we actually outlined what the different requirements are in each of the jurisdictions. They're not always the same, but whether a domicile requires you to have a NED or not, I think generally our opinion would be that good captive owners wanting to exercise good practice should be looking at having NEDs, whether they are required or not. I I think they should, Richard. The other thing I would urge non-execs who are either on captive boards now or are thinking about doing this in the future is to keep your eyes and ears open for the various networking groups Uh, Most of the captive managers have really good networking groups. Get yourself invited. Uh, If you're looking at Guernsey, go to the Guernsey International Dinner every year and network and meet people. Um, But make your interests known because if you don't tell people... Um, then nobody's going to know that you might be interested. So lastly, where does to, to make these improvements and to diversify these boards and to exercise this good practice, where does the onus actually lie? Is it on the captive owner themselves who need to work hard to go out and, and populate their boards with, with, excellent, with excellent board members or is it more the captive manager? Where, 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 is, where is the responsibility? I think the answer to that, Richard, is it's a team sport. Mm. I think uh, the captive manager and the captive owner need to work together You need to understand what the purpose of the captive is. Go right back to the basics. Why does that captive exist? And remember, of course, the purpose you started off with may not be the purpose that exists for that captive today. And most captives that I'm aware of, uh, again, are not static vehicles. They're dynamic vehicles that change their purpose over time. So I think the captive manager and um, the uh, parent need to sit down and talk to each other The other thing I would suggest too, um, if you do uh, get the luck and joy of sitting on a captive, I I really enjoy those board positions. They're always interesting, never dull, four completely different unrelated sectors, is that to be an effective director, you also have to walk the company. So do go along to their renewal meetings, do go and meet the company. Obviously, you're not doing the executive job. But you would do the same sort of thing uh, that you would do if you were on any non-executive director role, walk the business, understand what they're doing and understand how they're spending the money that you're the custodian for when you sit in that non-executive role. The Global Captive Podcast is supported by R&Q, the award-winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. R&Q can provide a wide range of solutions and has A-rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to R&Q. 
Welcome back to the Global Captive podcast, where I am joined by Jenny Coletta, partner at EY. So I see there has been uh, some consultations out just in the in the last month in the November time on Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. So what are the OECD's latest suggestions? So 2019 has been very much about the OECD putting in place this framework called BEPS 2. So Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, two very different uh, approaches but likely to work in parallel. Both of these pillars bring about radical changes to the international tax landscape and go beyond what we would say are established principles in the international tax world, such as the arms length principle. Pillar one really impacts all multinationals, um, particularly those with large business to consumer models initially started as being focused on those businesses that interact with users in a particular market through digital technology but now is addressing any multinational business that has a lot of users or market participants in a jurisdiction where they may not have a physical presence. And in those scenarios, the the pillar one approach essentially requires that as a global group, you would take a proportion of your profits and allocate that into the local market. So even though you may not have a taxable presence there at the moment, and this will then obviously benefit hugely the emerging markets where they've got huge populations making use of products and services, but they're not seeing the tax take. That will be backed up by other safe harbor measures that would say, okay, if you've got lots of users in that market, then they will be rewarded at a safe harbor level. So that again gives assurance to the emerging market tax jurisdiction. And then to give assurance to the capital providing jurisdiction more likely to be the more established um, countries, there will be a mandatory binding dispute resolution process, which there's been a lot of pushback on that. So that consultation document was released in October. There were meetings in Paris in November to go through those proposals. And the OECD needs to publish something by the end of January, which will show consensus of those 135 countries, which at this stage seems quite challenging. Mm. Uh, Pillar 2 is is really very similar to US tax reform. It's essentially global uh, base erosion provisions that would apply a minimum tax at the parent company level to say if your effective tax rate is above a certain level on a global basis, then you don't need to top it up. But if it's below that, then you do. And it would also apply these subject to tax rules, which would say if you've got a transaction going outbound out of your jurisdiction, then we would look to tax that. So very similar to the BEAT or the diverted profits tax. So both of those um, pillars would impact captive owners um, depending on their particular structures. But I would say pillar two is the one that will probably have more direct relevance to the captive as it would likely apply to that outbound transaction much as the diverted profits tax. Let's talk more about the uh, direct impact of BEPS on captives Jenny what are the most worrying parts of BEPS for captive owners and and the industry? So I think putting aside the historic position under BEPS 1 um, where we've already seen changes coming through in tax legislation I think in the future in the new world um, the pillar 1 and pillar 2 proposals could be particularly damaging for multinational captive owners so In the first instance, the provisions are obviously targeting uh, potentially low and zero tax jurisdictions with things like the Pillar 2 approach, with things like 
a sort of minimum tax type approach under Pillar 1. And, and as we talked about earlier, captives are often located in those jurisdictions for commercial reasons. So there will likely become pressure on those jurisdictions to consider their, their particular tax rates or whether they implement a tax rate. But equally, for the multinational owners themselves, an increased uh, level of scrutiny around their cross-border footprint, as we've seen with some of the previous BEPS measures, things like country-by-country reporting, which really shine a light on where you have uh, entities and what those entities are doing. This would then go even further and then um, address the challenges around having those structures in your group and and how that blends with your your wider tax um, profile. We hear a lot about the importance of demonstrating the economic substance of a captive so what do we really mean by economic substance or substance and and is this challenge restricted by to just those captives in the offshore jurisdictions so this again had its heart the BEPS one project so action five of BEPS one was on harmful tax practices and that was essentially saying all of those 135 countries in the inclusive framework need to have minimum standards around transparency and exchanging of information as well as then substance requirements for low and zero tax countries Uh, Those countries were given uh, until the end of December 2018 to put in place provisions that became enacted 1st of January 2019. So another big change in 2019. We've seen corporate laws implemented in most, if not all, of those low and zero tax countries, which now essentially require economic substance to be located there, um, whether that's a holding company, whether it's an operating company, or specifically, as referred to in in most of the country's legislation, financial services companies, including insurers. So what then can uh, captive owners actually do to demonstrate demonstrate that economic substance because it seems to me that a lot of the offshore jurisdictions are kind of almost like a a battle to prove that they can show this this substance. Yeah and it's a two-sided test because equally the um, operating companies in other jurisdictions those tax authorities can again look to challenge for example the premium payment to a captive and say is there real substance in that low or zero tax jurisdiction. We tend to recommend that multinationals uh, think of it as a two-way process so the captive is packaging the risk for the group as a whole it's also providing insurance coverage to the rest of the group Um, so that requires a separate skill set a separate group of people that are responsible for that and then on the other side the multinational itself will obviously have its own risk requirements and will need to either go and buy that cover in the third party market or use the captive and again that needs to be two separate dialogues and two separate groups of people. That needs to be uh, clearly documented I presume as well. Yeah absolutely a lot of this is about being able to demonstrate even where you have got uh, individuals that maybe cross over those two sides that there is very clearly delineated their responsibilities. Great. So how are we seeing this then impact upon the captive domiciles and the owners that you're familiar with? Are we seeing kind of are we actually seeing the change in behaviour and, and decisions even around uh, choosing domiciles? When this substance rules initially started to surface, probably in 2015, 2016, we did see behavioural change um, and 
the transparency angle of BEPS also highlighted that. M- many multinationals were then questioning, should we have our captive in that location? Should we be thinking about who we put on the ground there to run the captive? Who from the group is responsible for that um, operation? So as a result of that, increasing the substance, increasing the the team on the ground means you need to get better use out of your captives. So therefore you might think, well, I might put more risks in there. I might build out the the scale of my captive, make it a, a larger operation. For some at the smaller end of the market, they've taken a look and economically may not make sense. So we have seen some scale back of the smaller end of the market. Well, now we are going to hear from Peter Halperin, partner at PASIC Law Firm based in New York. Peter is involved in complex reinsurance disputes representing the insured, and he and I met in New York back in August to try and shed some more light on this rarely discussed but important element of the captive market. I I am a a policyholder attorney. I represent policyholders in disputes primarily with their direct insurance companies. Um, But over time, as more and more clients have used captives as part of their risk management strategy, um, we've become involved in representing captives and advising captives in disputes with uh, reinsurance. So on the reinsurance disputes, that's something we haven't covered before in the podcast, so it's great to have a chance to talk to you about this. Are there key differences between a primary insurance dispute that corporate insurance buyers might be more familiar with in compared to kind of reinsurance dispute that does involve a captive and their own insurance company? Sure. I mean, just just as a, a baseline difference between direct insurance and reinsurance, in the direct insurance market, the client or the policyholder is looking to prove that they have coverage under the policy and there are umpteen exclusions and, and so on and so forth. Um, in a reinsurance treaty or a reinsurance arrangement, typically the reinsurer follows the fortunes of the sedent. And so when you're following the underwriting fortunes of the sedent, you as the reinsurer have a much uh, more deferential position where you need to defer to the decisions uh, of the sedent. One area we can see reinsurers challenging a captive on coverage is under a, a bad faith or if they suspect there's collusion between the policyholder and the insurer, which in this case is captive. How easy or hard is it to prove bad faith on on the part of a captive right so given that that deferential standard bad faith is going to be one of the only uh, or the limited grounds that can be used to uh, to avoid coverage for a reinsurer and i think it's very very hard to get Um, there are very few circumstances where courts have found that that bad faith and typically in those situations what you're seeing is a marked departure from the standard and what you're seeing is a marked departure from what the captive typically does in how it handles or reviews claims. And so is there anything captives can do to anticipate reinsurance disputes and also kind of lessen their likelihood in the future? I think the the most important thing is for the captive and the reinsurer to have a collaborative relationship and for the captive to disclose the procedures, claims handling procedures that they use to the reinsurer and the reinsurer to work with them to say, okay, that's, that's an acceptable procedure. I think in most of the circumstances where we've seen a challenge, the insurer has alleged bad faith or collusion or something of that nature simply because there's a relationship between the, the parent company and the captive. And I think it's particularly important in these instances for the reinsurers to take a realistic view and to recognize that this is the nature of the 
the relationship, and so there may be some overlap. And for the for the seed in to protect themselves, the most important thing they can do is set up fair procedures and stick to those procedures. As I said, in the few circumstances where courts have had bad faith, typically there's a departure from what's typically done. So as long as the rules are followed, things should be okay. When when clients come to me and they ask me this question, one of the things we do is we look at the claims procedures. Um, there's a difference between single-member captives and group captives. Um, there's also a difference between situations where there's a claims committee or some kind of group that's analyzing claims, or it may be you know, the CFO of the captive. Right? These are all very different scenarios, but the most important thing is that both the captive and the reinsurer know exactly what the procedures will be and then that those procedures are in fact followed. And I presume then on that, on that note that kind of things like documentation and actually having it written down, both the procedure and kind of a paper trail showing it was done properly, I imagine are important. Absolutely. And although it's an expense, I always advise my captive clients to make sure they have independent coverage analyses done, particularly in difficult or uh, complex cases. I think there they can always go back then to the reinsurer to say, you know, we, we've invested in bringing in independent counsel to come in and to take a look at this issue. And this was their finding. And then this is how we've acted based on their finding. So, so what's been your experience when these, when these disputes do actually make it to arbitration? Yeah, well, I'll start with this, which is that um, most of the cases that I've seen have involved the healthcare industry and either hospitals or other healthcare providers. Typically, they're facing class actions and the damages are very significant. They have captives and they're looking to their reinsurers to cover these, these claims. One of the unique things I've seen in reinsurance is that you tend to have arbitration clauses. And you tend to have arbitration clauses, which from the perspective of the captives are not always necessarily fair and balanced. Typically, you will see a requirement that the arbitrators are uh, insurance executives or former insurance executives or reinsurance executives. And again, for a captive, that can put them at a significant disadvantage. They may be in one dispute over the course of the lifetime of the captive, whereas the reinsurers can be in hundreds or even thousands of disputes. So uh, coming to this, if you say it's got to be a former insurance or reinsurance executive, can put the captive at a significant disadvantage. Um, Other rules that can put the captive at a significant disadvantage include rules which uh, deem the the, um, contract an honorable engagement, and that's H-O-N-O-U-R, for for translating for everyone so they understand where we are. And the idea is that custom and practice should be taken into account as as opposed to pure law. The challenge that you have for a client who's relatively unfamiliar with custom and practice is that they may have thought they were purchasing a certain kind of cover and didn't realize that perhaps the custom and practice differed significantly. So in terms of predictability in contractual relations, it's very important for the captives to know, okay, this is the law that's going to be applied, and this is how we understand what the words in this contract mean. Um, so reinsurance is an interesting area, or reinsurance arbitration is an interesting area because uh, when disputes arise, the captive may find itself in somewhat of a disadvantage. Uh, I can tell you that there has been a movement to try to change that. Um, In the U.S. and the U.K., there's ARIUS, 
which typically creates the rules that the society has used. Uh, I am actually on a committee that is rewriting the rules for direct insurance disputes and trying to tilt the playing field so that it's more level for policyholders and disputes with direct insurers. Um, I suspect that some of that will carry over, and we've certainly talked about captives being part of that and creating rules that will also apply to captives. And the idea there, again, is just to try to level the playing field so that um, parties that may traditionally have felt disadvantaged in this dispute resolution forum now feel like they can have a fair shake. I'm sure as well that it, and it, this is, I think, true in all kinds of areas surrounding captives. You know, a business, a company that owns a captive, their core business is not insurance their core business is widget making or making coca-cola or you know or whatever so i guess bringing that external expertise whether it's in-house or retaining a law firm or working with other insurance experts is always going to be really important in those disputes to try and even without the help of the law to try and level the playing field absolutely i mean i think at the end of the day um, like all other businesses this is about relationships and for all sides, the best way to proceed is to take the long view and to work on a long-term business partnership. Uh, when I'm getting a phone call, it's usually too late. Uh, I'm always happy to give advice on the front end and to suggest here are procedures that you may want to put into place. But generally, the calls come when there's a dispute. Thank you to all of our guests this week. Um, uh, before I do that, thank you also to AXA XL, who very kindly offered us a boardroom to record this episode in, as my usual destination was unavailable. So thank you to all our guests, uh, Airmix, Julia Graham, Pasic Law Firm's Peter Halprin, and you, Jenny Gletter from EY. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Merry Christmas, and see you next time, captives. <laughs>